You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for week ending Friday 13th of March. My name's Elizabeth McCarthy. I produce The Breakfast Show and I'm here to tell you what's happening on this podcast. You'll hear an interview with Tony Wilson, former Breakfaster and author and blogger about his book 1989, The Great Grand Final. You'll also hear an interview with playwright Michelle Lee about her new production Single Ladies, which is on at Red Stitch. You'll hear a chat with regular segment presenter Vanessa Toholka looking at emerging tattoo technologies. Also, are a couple of talk breaks uh, where the team talk about boomer holiday whale season and also 90s sing-along and uh, they riff about red gum and loneliness. Hope you enjoy the podcast a lot. Feel free to connect with Breakfasters via their Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Triple R. From Bite Into It, Wednesdays at 7pm on Triple R, it's time for Tech Talk with Vanessa Taholka. G'day, Vanessa. Morning, everyone. How good are morning. we all? It is good. a good morning. It is a lovely morning. What have, you, what have you brought in? Look, I wonder, when you think about tattoos, do you ever think about the potential healthful effects that they might have? I reckon Sarah might think about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't occurred to me, no. No, and I think most of us, if we think about tattoos and health, we probably think about health risks and and mitigation of the risks um, Mm -hmm. when we're getting them. But there is a future of tattoos which potentially has a massive crossover with health and it's in the biotech industry. So people thought about tattoos and went, look, here's something that is – introduced to the body it's very close to the skin and that's exactly where we'd usually see things like wearable technologies um, with sensors like taking readings about temperatures and pulse rates and potentially understanding things about um, chemical makeup of our sweat Mm. you know Scab thickness? Oh, yeah, glorious. Thanks, Daniel, for bringing that up. I'm not cringing at all. Uh, Look, it would depend where you had that. But people have been experimenting in universities around the world with the idea of creating uh, technology-enabled tattoos. So going, if we're going to put something on the skin anyway, how can we make it a bit utilitarian? So... They have started going, it's lighter and more flexible than having a wearable. You know, if we if we put something on people's skin like this, it is, um, it's, I guess, uh, portable yeah. and it's always with you. So current you can sensors. can have it in the shower. Exactly. So they're like, what could we do? So there's a few ways that they've been trying to design biosensors and skin patches that can detect um chemical changes so they've so far had success with levels of cortisol and glucose in sweat Um, they're also doing tiny devices with things like stacked gold and zinc oxide thin films and they've got porous polymide substrate so if you're a chemist you can really get into this and they can start to reliably detect things like glucose levels amazing for anyone experiencing diabetic type of symptoms so just imagine if instead of having to like test yourself with a little skin blood prick every yeah. day or multiple times a day, you could look at a tattoo on your skin and the sensor colour would tell you 
what's going on and whether you needed to watch your glucose levels and, and how to cope with that. Couldn't okay. that be a game wow. changer? What's going on? Are we turning wow. into cyborgs I'm, right now? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, there's multiple technologies at play here. Some of them are in the inks, like how can they make the inks reactive to different sorts of chemical things coming out of our bodies. Um, some of the testers that they've done on different biomarkers are only an on-off sort of test at the moment, but they're hoping that they can create more complexity there and really have scalable sorts of things. Um, so there's all sorts of things they're trying they're trying to test for. Uh, yeah. So it, they're, it, this is voluntary. Absolutely. And, and no one's for the forcing time you being. to get, get the tech. However, I mean, you say that, but there are potential military applications here. So let's say you wanted to have a quick check of um, are there poisons in the air? You know, can you have a sensor? I personally think that the current solution of having a patch on a uniform that changes colour when exposed to different dangerous materials is sense- is great. Yeah. But, you know, let's say you lost that and, you know, you can look at a patch on your hand and go, oh, my gosh, there's something around. Let's let's deal with that. Or pathogens in, in someone's body, you could, you could detect those sort of things. Um, but I think more realistically, more in the everyday sorts of levels, we're looking at, you know, things like diabetes, um, various things that, uh, monitor levels of stress. Stress could be really significant. Mm. So you go immediately, you're like, right, high stress situation, might not have noticed it myself, but I've got this trigger to notice it. Therefore, I can take some coping um, steps towards dealing with that. Yeah. Have you seen this? Fascinating. Uh, look, there's all sorts of experiments. I mean, you're looking at things from different universities. Um, f- there's one that has been designed at um, the Tel Aviv University in Israel, for example, that can be worn on either the face or the hand, and there's videos, and it can measure the activity of muscles and nerve <gasps> cells. So they're hoping that it will have uses for anyone experiencing neurodegenerative diseases or stroke patients or people with nerve damage like amputees or people who have brain injuries to help them measure movements in a face or movements somewhere that the person can control in order to then use that as triggers to control something else. So mobility aids, for example. Mm. So, I mean, the the potential is really limitless, but I had just never thought about something like a tattoo as being able to be so kind of tech-enabled and thought about the implications of it moving across your body. And You think about how many of my friends still get terrible tattoos and Anyone know they don't? They all have beautiful tattoos. <laughs> but I just think about like the quality of tattoo can be so te- you know you get such bad quality tattoos. Yeah. But you're talking about this quality that's like scientific and responds to things. It just seems so far apart from. Mm. Yeah, does but that the, make sense? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It's like how do you? But you can combine them. Like if I so was, a bad tattoo can yeah, still be receptive. Yeah, I would get um like if it was for stress. Maybe the tattoo reacts it, like I'll just get a hand with the stress ball in it, and when yes. it's stressed, <laughs> it'd squeeze it like a mood ring. Yeah, and then or if I was like um, diabetic, then I'd get like a jelly baby tattoo, and oh, then yeah. exactly. change, change color when oh, I needed to have a jelly baby, or like a pie chart that shows info like folded into a yin yang symbol. Oh, that's oh, gorgeous! Yeah. Look at that. But I think you could be really creative with it, but also you you would have to be sensitive to how many people do I want to know understanding what this biomarker is you know do I want this to be easily visible to other people just to me is it something where I need to peek under my shirt every now and again and just check how are those stress levels you know yeah yeah it's kind of fascinating stuff it really it's yeah it's quite 
so your your view is that we should this is a um we should be welcoming this development it's, it's, it, yeah it has medical <laughs> applications which were hitherto you know un you know foreseen uh, and- you know what i love about it is that it does challenge some of the maybe societal expectations around tattoos yeah. there's still a bit of prejudice around tattoos I, I still have you know some family members who uh find them a little confronting or or ugly or, mm. or just you know speaking to a subcultural kind of marker that they don't understand and and yet I think they're just so normalised, despite not having any myself. I think it's really interesting that we could we could do really constructive things with them and, and suddenly, uh, and you know, a 70-year-old might be going, it's not just, you know, something I saved until I was 70 to do and sure I could be wild and crazy. It's also a useful thing. And it flips, it's, it flips the idea of, you know, tattoos used to be this... Uh, identifier or like a prison tat or something like that. It's taking that then and making an official tattoo, but for, I don't know, a good purpose. There's something about yeah. that that's really... It, somehow it doesn't creep me out as much as the shoving ch- microchips under your skin that yes. get yeah. out of date yeah. and Creepy. then you have to, you know, suck them out again and oh. update them. Like It seems less invasive to me. Anyway, uh, it's kind of cool. Vanessa, illuminating as always. Thanks so much. Triple R. Uh. Michelle Lee is an author and award-winning playwright who works across stage, audio and live art. She's making her Red Stitch theatre debut with the premiere, uh, premiere of Single Ladies presented as part of this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival and the theatre maker joins us now. Michelle, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, you've written a very local play. Can you set up mm. Single Ladies for us? Yeah, it, it's set over a, a day um, and set in Collingwood, in the Collingwood of, of now, um, and we follow the getting to know each other between three um, characters, Anne, Lilica and Rachel, and they're all strangers at the start of the day. And and what's, what role has Collingwood played in your life or...? That, um, this urban environment. Yeah, I, I, I got to Melbourne in the early noughties and at that time I'd say it was still more affordable for um, people in their 20s to have, you know, live in those kind of um, falling apart houses, which I, I guess have just been sold now and aren't there. So younger people still are living in Collingwood but not the same way they were when I got to Collingwood. So so when, uh, when I got to Melbourne, so I've actually never lived in Collingwood but had lots of friends who lived in Collingwood or Fitzroy. I, I also worked in Fitzroy for a little while and hung out there a lot more than I used to. So when I, when I first got to Melbourne, I had people who had been in Melbourne kind of long, longingly talk about what Fitzroy and Collingwood used to be like and I think now I'm in a position to also have that, that sense of time to feel differently about what the, the neighbourhood used to be like and what it's like now. Yeah, I, I live in Collingwood, and yeah. I, um, I've, but I've only been there for uh, a couple of years and I was chatting to someone else that um, has lived in like Fitzroy mm. for like 30 years yeah. and she was like, you're not a local. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's totally fair. Um, so what is it that brings these characters together? Can we, can we talk mm. about that? Yeah, yeah, I can say that because like, there's some parts of the story I don't want to give away for those people who might end up seeing it. Um, they're brought together because they want to find a dog, a missing dog. Oh, that's so Collingwood. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> and what is it about these women? So they're three women, but they're older women, aren't they? Um, can the, you tell us a little two, bit yeah, about them? Yeah, the, there's two older characters. So there's Anne who she's new Collingwood and that she's moved in in those apartments that are above yep. Coles. But I guess those apartments are unique because all up and down Smith Street, yeah, there's you yeah. know, a lot of development, lots of high rises. Um, so Anne's 
not from the neighbourhood and has just moved in into a, a, one of those new apartments is Lydica, who's um, she is from Collingwood and she's so Anne's in her kind of sixties, late uh, late sixties, early seventies. Uh, Lilica, who's in her fifties or so, um, and she's in. I, I, I think I think Caroline, the, the actor, has done a great job with Lilica because I think she's kind of teeters on the edge of potential caricature because she's she's old school. She's grassroots activist. She's kind of one of those people that you don't want to sit down next to at a dinner party because they just fight you on. On all the things that you think, yes, these are good issues to fight, but she kind of takes it. She's intense Too and she's far. extreme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she's like every day for her is protest and it's a fight. Um, and then there's a younger character, Rachel, who's in her, her, her 20s and she's just broken up with her girlfriend um, like nine months ago, <laughs> but she's still calling her girlfriend every day and she just can't get out of her funk. And she's also in the apartments, but the apartments above Coles, like look, there literally are hundreds of people who live there. So you can kind of hole away in, in your own little one or two beddy and not meet anybody else. So yeah. essentially they're all strangers um, at the start of the day. And d- does the play making its premiere during the comedy festival change your writing of it? Do you, do you amp up the comedy? Do, how yeah, far- that, yeah, that's an interesting question because when, when it was programmed by Red Stitch, they decided that at the end of last year, it was a surprise to me that they put it into the comedy <laughs> festival. Um, so it, it always had been pitched as as comedy with with you know with drama in it mm. as well but in, in terms of now that we know it's in the comedy festival and in the direction and presentation of it I don't know at one point um background on a pop off the director like we've talked a lot about what is the tone of this uh, is it you know the caricature and um the knowing kind of laughter or are we are we essentially just following people who are trying to trying to be good and for me for me it's the latter yeah. Mm. yeah, and it's an entirely female team. Yeah, pretty much actually. This, the two stage managers, the whole design team. Although there is a lighting designer, he is an associate. <laughs> he's, he's male. But other than that, it, it's happened to be an yeah all female creative team, and the story is following women in the city. Mm. I'm kind of like not to harp on about Collingwood, but I'm kind of interested in how you identify place in play because sometimes a set can be minimal. Yeah. It's not you know. Skipping Girl Vinick is Richmond, isn't it? But it's not like you have some weird thing that just sits there and goes, this is Collingwood. How do you identify yeah. place and draw place into a play like yeah, that? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, it's there in, in the dialogue but, you know, of course I'm trying to avoid to – like there's specificity there but I'm trying to avoid to signal all the time like, yeah. hey, everyone, we're back on Smith Street. But I saw a, um, a dress run last night and – um, it's the first time I've seen it you know, more more dressed and more more finished. And um, Romani Harper, the designer, I think I think she was handed like, a little bit of a turd sandwich in some ways. Like, how do you <laughs> how do you evoke this place without kind of hammering it in? Obviously, and it's it keeps shifting. Like we kind of we're in the one place, but every scene's in a different location mm. in the neighbourhood. And Romani's I think achieved like a sense of unity and kind of found things in I guess she just went to Smithsbury a lot and had a look around (laughs) but I I think the things that she's pulled together um for me when I was watching last night there were moments where I'm like yeah it's obviously we're we're in Collingwood um without having to to be like (laughs) anyway yeah yeah. (laughs) there's a a little bit of that 
<laughs> but I think that the yeah, particularly that the production design has kind of really spoken to, particularly like what Collingwood is is now as well with the the new developments. And and I don't want the play to be. It's not an anti gentrification play. Like it's is just a point in time where this neighbourhood is at play. And, and just mm. zooming out. Uh, but focusing on your career, you've you've notched up a few residencies around the world as well. Mm. well what role have, has that played in your development? Oh, yeah. I mean, great. I mean, there's been some residencies where um, for previous works, like the play I had on a couple of years ago going down at the Malt House, um, that's, that's 2018, and I had a residency... 2016 or so, where I was just able to really spend some time just locating certain scenes in my head about like what was working and what wasn't working. I think I think those chances to, I mean, we were just speaking about yeah. this before, um, to not be in your home environment and not go, oh, I better go do the laundry and oh, yeah, what are we going to have dinner tonight? <laughs> um, and to be away and kind of to get really obsessed with your work away from your natural environment. Mm. It has been yeah, really important and I'm always welcome to get funded. Where have you been based overseas with your writing? Um, I was in the very first time I did a residency was about 10 years ago in, in Laos, in Ventian, and that was for three months. And then I've been in China and then Castlemaine <laughs> for a couple of days. Uh, and the US uh, as well? And or? the US, yeah. And, yeah, the Playwrights Centre in Minneapolis, yeah. And it's, with this play, uh, is there anything, is there a minor detail that no one, if, if it weren't for you telling us right now, no one would realise the amount of effort that went into this? Oh, there's a, there's a minor, there's some details there in the stage directions where sometimes as a playwright you're like, oh, this is going to be fun. How are they going to do it? And then you go, oh, actually, it's probably just not that achievable. And it's, it's fun. It's like almost an, a joke for me. So th- there's a, a scene where it's supposed to be at the, uh, now, is it, what's that bakery called? Now I've forgotten. The bakery oh, that does the, the, sun, bun, yeah, the, the sun, bun mees, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opposite, um, Opposite Woolies. the Woolies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind, it's kind of there in the stage directions. Um, but, I mean, they have bun meat on stage, but I guess in my mind, maybe in like the really big budget, probably in the movie really, yeah. <laughs> you're kind of there and you know exactly where you are and there's the glare of the fluorescent lights and there's, you know, it's not block vanilla slices. <laughs> and um, So there's a few details there that are in the stage directions that, um, like I guess I know they're more of a jumping off point like because you can't literally recreate mm. moments from the world and, and you should be trying to as well because they're not going to match up anyway. Do, do you have to make bun me's every night or are I, they fake? Or I are hope they... they're not because <laughs> <laughs> they looked really real to me last night <laughs> but I hope they get replaced. Passing them away <laughs> and bringing them out again. Yeah. I mean, I know they don't have the biggest budget but I'm, surely they can replace the bread upon me every night. <laughs> Uh, well, you can check the state of the bun maze at Red Stitch Theatre, uh, St Kilda. From 11th of March to the 12th of April, Single Ladies is on, written by Michelle Lee, and you can go to redstitch.net for uh, more ticket info. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. I've been accused many times of this, of holidaying like a boomer and you know what? <laughs> I'm, I will embrace it. Uh, Lean into the boomer. Yeah, I do holiday like a boomer, mm. uh, which means that I'll go to um, museums, mm-hmm. um, I'll just check out like if there's a tower to go up, I'm up. Do you yeah. book like, everything through Trivago? <laughs> 
Do you take photos with your iPad? Yes. <laughs> yes. Or just walk around filming every moment with your iPad. <laughs> just, um, yeah. Sometimes. No, don't take the iPad. Do it on the phone. Lots of pictures. When we were over in WA, there was um, one day where we went to some tourist centre and they had a rose maze, like a big maze that you walk through. Made of roses. All made of rose bushes. And it was... Kind of dangerous. Oh, Big parts. Oh, okay. Like, what? Well, yeah. Oh. It's not like you got caught in a okay. rope. You know, it was just, it was a rose garden, essentially, that you got to walk around in. And I loved it. Mm. <laughs> like, it was this moment of, like, oh my God, I am 65. And, <laughs> like, just smelling all the different roses and think, oh, that's got a nice, or oh, I like the look of that one, but I like the smell of that one better. And it was just, but I, it was just this day. It was like, oh, who, who am I? Where, who would have thought that I, I would have turned my nose up at the and idea? It's one of those things, you know. If you went on holidays with your parents, they go, "Now we're going to do something nice, and we're going to go this, this, yes, we are going to walk through this rose maze, mm. and we're going to have a nice time." And I would have like rolled my eyes and gone, "This is so dumb and boring." Yeah, but you're literally stopping to smell the roses. Yeah, but as a forty-year-old, I was like, <laughs> "Oh, please, let's go around well. again." How, how like mazes are just yeah. It was oh. heaps of fun. It was I just I thoroughly enjoyed what it. What if you're the botanist in charge of the rose maze? Mm. I don't know. Like A, do you get lost on your job? Oh yeah. B, um, you go. Oh, I'm here. No one can find me. I'll just hang out for a little bit yeah. in the maze. It'd be a great job. I think it? it'd be a great job. I'd love to be a curator of a rose bush maze. <laughs> yeah, I would too. Yeah. Um, one of the other things we did in. In w, we were down in Albany uh, and we went to the whaling station um, museum. Um, it's because uh, in Albany, there was the this whaling station was like the last um, one to be closed down. The radio oh. station for whales. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, you have to, um, yeah, it's just high pitched <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> No, this uh, so there's the whaling station in um, yeah in Albany. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> oh, neither do I. Um, that you and it's all you know. They've got the coming the up old... next. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <A> dub remix. <laughs> um. But walking around that was like, oh, you know, you can get like a they do guided tours like you know around the place, um, and it was you know it's, it's fascinating, like seeing where um, and they were quite kind of quite brutal in, in giving all the information of what happened. You know, mm. they'd bring the the whales in and how they were chopped up and where it all went and and things like that. So it's like you know, on one hand, it was like, oh, this is fascinating, but it's like, oh, Jesus is brutal but mm. good to know your your history um and i didn't know that um that they uh they would um hunt for humpback whales and also sperm whales um and so they'd 
it's I think they were hunting they stopped they weren't allowed to hunt for humpbacks and then sperm whales or one one stopped before the other mm-hmm. and it was like 1978 before it was officially closed down um, and now it's just a, a, a museum um, with the wildlife park that's yeah. fun oh, yeah making up for the Bad yes. old days. Yeah, yeah. They also talked about how they'd um, they'd get a lot of sharks in there. Like they'd have to get them the whales in quite quickly before the sharks oh. ate them. Oh. Yeah. This is, I'm you just know. wondering, were you self-conscious about the fact that you have a sperm whale tattooed on your leg and oh, that mate. maybe you looked like a person that um, might have been pro, I don't know. Pro, pro whaling. Well, I don't know. But you were just there. This is where they used to catch the sperm whales. Were you well, worried about you were... Mine looked like an old whaler. I looked like a tour guide. <laughs> no, I just, I just looked like a fan of whales. Whale nut. Yeah, and it was on the guided tour. They they saw the tattoo okay. and it was pointed out. So I looked like a bit of a hero, like oh, on the. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. was the complete opposite. I looked like. I don't think a whale tattoo means I want to hunt them. Like it just. I think it means that I was very into the, the fact that it got closed down. And, you know, yeah, because <laughs> they, they, I was walking around, and they, you know, one point because I was, I'm like, I hope someone notices my whale tattoo because yeah. you know, I'm pretty on on brand here. Like, I think it might be the harpoon down the full length <laughs> yeah. of your forearm, but, you know, it's a bit dodgy. Um, anyway, but they did, they did say <laughs> they were like, you know, because we talk, someone said something about sperm whales, and I mentioned, you know, I said, oh yeah, they're they're the most intelligent mammal, um, in the world. Like they've got the biggest brain, and the you know, lady goes, oh yeah, that's right. And also, I I do see the whale oh. tattoo on your leg, and everyone had a look, and I was like, yeah, I'm a bit of a. Actually, I didn't know it was a sperm whale before I got it. <laughs> Just, I've read up about it since getting the tattoo. Uh, anyway, I booked in to get a harpoon. So, so. Triple R. Daniel, earlier um, this morning you were talking about having a song stuck in your head. Yeah. That you changed the lyrics. The Hilltop Hoods version. Oh, um, also, oh, just that- a shout out to anyone who's um, tuning in for the... Uh, film review, film review uh, Simone's Unwell. Yeah, I just yeah, wanted to yeah. let people know if there's yeah. someone who turns on at 7.15 and, and on Thursdays. why they're just listening to another cooked story from Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and also, before I said Hurricane Katrina, I meant Hurricane Sandy. That's going to be on my mind. Yeah, I can, oh, see, yeah, that that did, yeah. I can mm. see that it's eating you up. Different part of the <laughs> country. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, different year. I wouldn't worry. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I just replace the right word with a different word. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just carry on. <laughs> That's a recap of all the errors that have this one. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, what, I, he was only oh, I was only yeah, nineteen with with COVID nineteen. Yeah, I can't get that out. It's an earworm. I'm I'm having all these coronavirus earworms. What other ones are you having? Well, um, my corona. Oh, oh yes. you've had that a little m- bit. M- m- my, my, my. So <laughs> you know this is unrelated to coronavirus, but I need to get it out of my head. Mm. Someone said to me yesterday, "I'm feeling blue," and what happens when someone says, "I'm blue" to you? Smurfs. I'm blue. Double D double D double D double. Okay, and it's like murdering me from the inside out. Yeah. Well, and now you've added to that monster and I'm only like now it's just. Really messed up a loop in my head of those three songs. Oh, that's, here's a, another, just quickly another Descending one. Descending into madness. Um, 
uh, when I was in Sydney, um, there was a comic that was opening for me at a show that I was doing, um, and her name was uh, B Baba. <laughs> Cur- oh, I can't remember last, but it just the B and now and I have her name written down every time I see it. Are you doing the scat now? Yes, yes. I found on a. Is that even scatting? What are he's doing in that song? Oh, well. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you just scattered was, right was then, baby. Was, it, was that the scat man? Was that the scat man? Yeah, that was yeah. the scat man. And, but, I'm the scat but, man. Yeah, yeah. But the blue is different. Blue. But it's my, I guess, yeah, when you reference yourself as an artist within the song. But, yeah, I don't know any of his yeah. other hits. No. So I don't know if he truly is the scat man. Yeah. yeah. Did he ever scat for that song? Or was he just scatting <laughs> for that one He was just trying it on. I'm the scat man temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give this a go. Here's my... Um... Can I just quickly... Yes, intervene? Oh, absolutely. Because oh, um, I was going through CDs at, in my office. Why do you still have CDs, <laughs> mate? Get rid of them. <laughs> I can't deal with you. you the news that, is the death of Daniel Burt will be from piles of CDs and newspapers falling just on you. drowning in my... Uh, died how I lived. And I saw a single of um, uh, Aqua... Oh, oh yes. yeah, because I, I and I, I don't think it's mine. I think it's wound up in my possession. But before I turfed it, I, I pl- Oh, well, I haven't actually what turfed it. Yet. I still love Aqua. Re- oh, okay. Really? Yeah. You, and you played it? Yeah, I played Barbie all of it. Girl? Yeah, it was Barbie Girl was on there. There was like a remix that went for like ten oh, minutes. What about you know they had like two hits and then there was calling Doctor Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Jones, Doctor Jones. And so and then. Jesse is this from where we just badly sing songs from the nineties <laughs> to our listeners. Sorry, anyway. everybody. Um, Did you, were, you, were you into it or not? Well, no, I was just trying to get it out of my system because once you see <laughs> Dr. Jones, <laughs> like, I'm going to hear that song. Anyway, beep, bop, bop, bop. Bop, bop. Uh, I saw Red Gum uh, oh, at the Woodford Folk Festival many years ago. Oh, yeah. This is my first time ever going to, to Woodford uh, and I was only there for two nights. I arrived on, um, yeah, I was there for New Year's Eve and I did – it was – I I don't know why I did it, but I went to this festival on my own. I had friends that had been there earlier, but they're like, oh, yeah, we're leaving and we're not going to be there. I'm you like, weren't working. You were just by yourself. No, I was. I had. I did have gigs on. Oh. I was. I was. That's the reason for going. I had, yeah, a couple of gigs on, but earlier – or later on in the day. Anyway, I arrived – I got um, – it, it had been raining, it was muddy, I didn't know where I was going. They, but there's no one there to help you. They just go, yeah, just your tent's down that way. Like just it's getting so un- – I'm just being so stressed out and just having like all this stuff with me, like sleeping bags and pillows and my bags and stuff and just kind of walking around in the mud. Illig- no, no gumboots, just – like just being like having the worst day. Like eventually getting finding my tent, and then I knew where the like um they had like a general store kind of thing, and I went there and I bought a magazine. I've I never buy magazines. I just didn't want to leave my tent. I just went. I'm just going to go to my tent and hang out. I bought some some twisties and a magazine <laughs> and set myself up. And then was like after about ten minutes or so, was like this is pretty depressing. <laughs> Like, you are at a big music festival 
maybe get out and go and see go and watch some music you know get out amongst it and i'm walking around and there's so many different stages and stuff and there's you know like little um things yeah and i i walk past one tent and i go and i could hear i'm like i think i I know this band. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pop in here. I'm gonna, I know these people, uh, and then I sit down, and then I it clicked. I re- I'm like, oh, this is Red Gum. This is Red Gum, mm. and I'm sitting there listening. And I'm going, I only know one Red Gum song. <laughs> yeah, and I spend like the rest of the time just thinking, have they played it? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you, do just, you open? Half-eaten bag of twisties. Yeah. I'm fucking itching to get yeah. back to. I'm like, do you do you open with that song? Like, sure they wouldn't open. That surely they'd save that for the end, wouldn't they? Would they save it for the end, or would they just put it in the middle? Who knows where they? So just obsessing over it the whole time, <laughs> thinking maybe I should just go. They probably already played it, and then of course they. It's the last song they play it. Yeah. And everyone stands up and it's this, you know, beautiful moment that, you know, brings the audience together. Everyone's like dancing and hugging and being, you know, just having a moment together. And I look around and realise that I'm all alone. And I'm like, this is, once again, I am really sad and lonely again. I'm like, I'll go back to my twisties. But I walk out because it's New Year's Eve as well. This is like in the afternoon. But it's like in the afternoon. And I'm bad film. Oh my and then I walk out and I call my um my friends one of my friends back at home and um and she goes, Hey, how are you? I'm like, Yeah, I'm here and I don't know, I just I just watch Red Gum and I just got really um I just feel really lonely right now she goes oh yeah well um i'm at your place and we're having a party with all your friends and i'm like all right happy new year (laughs) and then i went back to my twisties (laughs) triple ah Long-time listeners will know former breakfaster Tony Wilson, son of 1971 premiership player Ray Wilson, was himself a listed <laughs> player for Hawthorne between 89 and 92, playing, however, zero games for his beloved Hawks. Now, the novelist and author of seven children's books is back with his first long-form work of sports writing since Australia United and his first book for adults in a decade. 1989, The Great Grand Final features dozens of interviews with stars of the game who were there shedding nostalgic light on the last grand final, the VFL era. And the writer and broadcaster joins us now. Tony, welcome back to Breakfast. Oh, Daniel, that intro. <laughs> how dare I be Ray Wilson's son? He's my father. That's absolutely correct. Certainly in this building, he's my father. <laughs> yeah. although, although he did contribute to the Save Our Rs campaign back in 2004. Oh, he? So he's he? probably more important to me in the history of the station than me in the history of the station yeah How, were you at the mcg with him on the day uh not on not in 1971 when he played no, um, no. i was negative one years old but in 1989 i was sitting next to dad and uh and was there as dermot backed back into the pack and dad just started an extended rant along the lines of <laughs> you, champion, you champion then he started sobbing and he actually didn't stop saying you champion until he got abused by a geelong fan a couple of rows back and 
told to be quiet. Um, How many times do you reckon you've watched the game since? I've worn out the DVD Mm -hmm. um, and I still have it, even though DVDs are on the way out. I'm going to have to work on transferring it. Um, You give it to Daniel. He loves the DVD. Oh, it is a a glorious game. Definitely Um, Blu-ray. Rated G, despite all the violence. And the the streaker as well. It's got um, Catwoman, of course. Let's not forget her um, hitting the ground halfway through the, I think it was the third quarter and Darren Flanagan, I spoke to him. He said that he was just uh, running with his... He had his head turned towards, towards the ball and Catwoman just flashed across his eyes and he thought, um, I almost you know, collected her and took her out. And so that would have been... Um, that would have made it a dramatic day even more dramatic. And you have advice for streakers in the book as well. I do. I, I say that <laughs> streak at boring patches of, of quiet grand finals because... At least um, Catwoman did get the the message that she needed to motor. So this was a fast game, and she was flying. Um, but but if you remember Helen D'Amico, um, you probably don't because you're not a football completist. Um, but 1982 grand final, Sarah. What year were you born? 84. So it was your people. It was the Tigers getting done, unfortunately. Yeah. But Helen D'Amico um, searing her way into the brains of every adolescent who watched that game. Uh, she just frolicked with a Carlton scarf <laughs> out in the middle of the MCG. Oh, and I remember that. so much airtime, so many photos down the years. Everyone remembers her. But Catwoman is just a blink. She's done. In um, I think she got half a second on screen. That was it. And uh, barely remembered. Are you, you, there are so many moments we're going to discuss no doubt in this book but as an obsessive who've watched this grand final over and over again is there one little moment that as a weird obsessive fan you love that maybe other people don't know about this grand final that you can pinpoint because I've got some from my great winning grand finals what's yours so mine is um in the third quarter um Ablett is just going bananas um he has already kicked six or so um and Langford has gone on to him and he's playing a really really fine game but he's he concedes five goals in the second half but there's a moment where the ball is kicked high and Greg Madigan is actually the one caught in the hole and I asked him and he said I just had this fear that I knew I was going to become a poster you know because you know he's you know he's behind you you know he's flying and you're just I just had to go back and I'm just waiting and he he was right to be worried because Ablett was coming and Ablett goes and he just a human stepladder he's a human (laughs) stepladder Madigan collapses under it the crowd just is is never been I've never heard the MCG louder and and Ablett is 13 feet in the air he's almost horizontal just um lying back and 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 then just from behind he's misjudged it slightly and so from behind Chris Langford kind of jumps up and just sort of plucks it out of Langford's uh, out of Ablett's hand. And so, what would have been one of the great marks in grand final history is relegated to sort of a soaring, slight misjudgment, <laughs> and then a regulation a regulation mark taken, um, and and then that's exactly when Catwoman arrives as well. So it's sort of this idea that. That football um, and this game has reached this crescendo point. And um, as it happened, the, the, the cats were going to keep coming and get closer. But that's the one. That is my personal mm. favourite oh, yeah. as a, you know, you know because I, I don't just go for the Ablett goals and that sort of stuff. <laughs> I, I go for the, the B side of one of the later records. You have touched on the violence. Can you run us through 
some of the highlights. Oh, uh, so there's Dippers is the worst, even though it's probably not remembered as much as some others. But he he just applies an elbow to Gary Hocking's face and knocks out three teeth. Um, the hit on Brereton is the most famous. That happens at the four second mark of the game, and um, is a preordained hit. So um, basically, Geelong had decided that for two years Dermot had been running off the square and running through players, midfielders um, from the opposition. It was within the rules at the time because if you hit someone within 10 metres, um, it was legitimate. So Dermot was exploiting what he called a loophole in the rules. And so Geelong went, well, we're not going to put up with that. And so Blight said to to uh, Yates, Mark Yates, um, we want you to get him. Can you get him in the first three minutes? Put him in a body bag, Johnny. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Yates says, why would it take me three minutes? <laughs> um, and he could write, run on an 11 second hundred. He was a brilliant athlete. And, and at halftime in the reserves, you know, with the business shoes on, Malcolm Blight is marking out the X marks, the spot from where he's going to take off from. And he, and just about seconds before the game, Michael Schultz, the Geelong centre-half back who's on Brereton, he stupidly stands on the wrong side so that Yates hasn't got a clear run at him. So Yates is using his eyes to try to move Schultz around to the other side of, uh, of, of Brereton. Um, then the ball's bounced, Brereton is hit, um, ribs break, um, internal bleeding, uh, really. But, of course, the, the kind of the legend of the day and, and, and what becomes the, the mythology of Dermot is that he rises and kicks a goal 200 seconds after his ribs break. So, um, And he's launching the book tonight with Dead Yates. Oh, really? Well, yeah. there's so many heroes. You talk to so many of the big names from this game. So you've got Dippy, you've got Dermy, you've got the Rat, Platten in here. Has there been any moment where you wished you hadn't dug deep with your heroes about your favourite grand final of all time? Uh, I didn't have too many. Um, these The ones who said yes to interviews uh, tend to have been the ones that from my time who remembered me and, and were um, enthusiastically involved and, and didn't sort of say, um, you know, we're, we're very polite and, and fun and great to interview. In terms of things that came out that are uncomfortable, um, there wasn't really much, you know, I, I guess the excesses of the era and, and, you know, I sort of look back and have commented before in, in books about, you know, the blokiness of footy clubs and, and what they were like in, in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, that sort of stuff wasn't the focus of the game. There was, there was a little bit on the kind of socialising and, um, and, and that sort of stuff, but I didn't really uncover anything that that was that I didn't know. The, the only real revelation I had where I went, wow, I've just never heard that before, is that, that Chris Langford, who you know ends up having the, the big job on Langford, uh, on Abbott once he goes berserk, he um, was meant to, they go to training on the Saturday of preliminary final week and they've got the week off and he thinks he's going, to, I'm going to go to my brother-in-law's at Euroa. And then Alan Jeans says, okay, everyone at Waverley, 2 p.m., and he goes, oh, I really want to go to brother-in-law's at Uroa. <laughs> and so he just goes, right? And so um, Ablett's, yes. Ablett's going crazy. He kicks eight goals, five in the preliminary. And Yabby, his um, jeans, is getting really worried. He's going, oh, get Langers over here. I want to talk to... Um, <laughs> Alan, <laughs> bad news. Uh, Langers isn't here. And no mobile phones, no email. And so Langford gets back to a full answering machine and, and really angry coach. Um, and, and so on the Thursday night, they pick the team and, and Langford notices that McGuinness has got the job on Ablett. And, and he said, um, he goes up to Alan Jeans afterwards and said, hey, come on, I haven't got Ablett. And he said, well, I wanted to talk to you about him on Saturday and you weren't there. So you can, uh, Scotty's going to have first crack. And I don't think look, I don't think Alan Jeans would have picked anything other than his best side, but he um 
probably just wanted to get another slap in because he was angry with him. What, so, what does the era say about the coaches and coaching? Uh, it's it's interesting in terms of the, the they're such small units. You know, like nowadays coaching panels include you know bigger than the team. Um, but uh, in those days, you know, the Malcolm Blight was the best interview I did. I had two hours with him in his house in Adelaide, and 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 Blighty said that oh, I used to get my packet of menthol cigarettes and and a bottle of port. <laughs> I'd sit down with the VHS and uh, and I'd watch the VHS and make notes. And so this was every Saturday night after the game or Sunday night after the game. And so the video review consisted of one person sitting there late at night writing notes. Um, and nowadays, there, there are, as he said, there's six um, people that would fulfil that role. And, mm. and, and so that sense that these guys, um, uh, in Malcolm and Alan Jeans, were so solitary um, and so powerful, really, that they really did set the agenda for their sides. And, and the relationship that the players had with them was, was massive. I guess even now it would be. But the, um, the stuff that they said about Alan Jeans, I did a chapter on his death, and what the um, Hawthorne players said about Yabby was just beautiful. Um, there was a there was one bit where Al, where Gary Ayres talked about he rang to try to get out to the retirement uh, home where where Alan was um, was staying, and he said, "I oh, can I come out?" And they said, "Family only." And 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 then he said, uh, "So they put Alan Jeans on," and and halfway through they kind of realised this would be their last conversation, and. And uh, and Ayers started saying, "Look, everything I achieved in forty, I owe to you." And and um, and Jeans comes back and says, "No, I, I owe it all to you, Gary." Mm. And then Ayers said he hung up and just sobbed. You know, yeah. said that's the last time I'm going to speak to him, and it was. It's very sentimental book, and there's lots of quite philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in there as well. And Blight uh, Hawthorne famously won, of course, but the idea of the runner-up not being recognised, perhaps. Uh, as they as they could or should be, um, Blight talks about how you know that that's a deficiency in our coverage of the sport. So in the I think it was after 1981, um, Peter Moore threw his runners up medal away, and from that point on, the AFL uh, stopped handing out runners up medals. And um, and and Malcolm Blight said that you know he he lobbied not because he kept losing grand finals because he did lose I think it was three with Geelong. Um, but he said, look, it's something I've always thought that there's not enough recognition given to the losers on the day. Um, and and he, he cites a tradition over in Adelaide where they both teams go off to, I think, one of the breweries and they paint the chimney stack of the brewery and the, the winning team gets 12 feet to paint their colours and then the losing team gets six feet to paint their colours. And he says it's really nice. Both sides get out there and it's a... It's a bit of a communal thing and, and um, there's a recognition of the side that's come second. Mm. It's like a book that could have – you don't harp on about Gary Ablett, but it's hard to avoid him as this kind of almost like mythical creature throughout the whole thing. Do you think that – there's some really interesting facts. You talk about how complicated he was as a player and as a person. Did you feel like you came any closer to understanding his – not only like greatness as a player, but maybe difficulties as a human being in this process? Um, I, I, I guess I just compiled the stories to a large extent. I would have loved to have spoken to him, but I didn't get hold of him. Um, but the the anecdotes about him, because he's so memorable, they all everyone has one. Yeah. So, you know, like one that I just love is Tim Darcy saying that, you know, we got taken out for a camp in you know, somewhere out near Bensdale or something and and 
they they turned the lights on and Malcolm Blight's game was you had to chase rabbits because and and if you you know get as close to the rabbits as you could and apparently that that tickled Gary's interest and he was you had you had to think of things to stimulate him because if it was non-competitive or, or or repetitive he just wouldn't he wouldn't participate and wouldn't try but chasing rabbits yes tick combined his and, love of hunting and running and, and, yes. and, and, and tim darcy said just to see him chase rabbits he was just out there after the rabbits is what he said and, and he had this image and i don't know there's a moment halfway through the first quarter which i um the sun is shining on gary abbott and he's on fire and he hasn't even started dominating the game but he's running he's 10 meters in front of mcginnis and it's just like this perfect specimen flying and just as in the shot he's all alone and he's out on his toes and malcolm blight talks about when you saw him on his toes it was like a he calls it like a prancing horse and it's just so explosive and so powerful and and i kind of can see why tim darcy remembers chasing the rabbits because it would have looked almost inhuman but people can't move that beautifully and um, and yet he could, and and so, you know, you collect all of the chasing rabbits type stories, um, you know, taking up tennis and kind of knocking over a pennant player by set three, you know, he's sort of yeah. just a freak of nature, probably as freakish as anyone who's ever played, and and yeah, difficulty of harnessing. One one I put in was um, that that they said to him, um, he was going on Sundays to church, and um, there was Malcolm Blight was a big rules man, and you know, if you don't attend training, you don't play. So he has a meeting of the, the the captains and the group and says, "Look, whoever um, we're going to, yeah, we'll finish him. We'll finish him. He isn't coming on Sundays." And they said, "Oh," and it turns out it's the day after he kicked fourteen goals. <laughs> <laughs> And Malcolm sort of smiled in the interview and said, oh, we let him go to church. (laughs) So the launch is tonight? Yeah, it's at the Glenferry Hotel, uh, 6 for 6.30. And Dermot and Yates and Ayres and and Kennedy and others are coming. So it's going to be a lot of fun, especially for Hawks fans. But Yates is representing the Cats and love to see people there. And there's an AFL logo on the front of this cover. Well, you can't get in an AFL shop without an AFL logo. So uh, I'm a slave to the beast. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, 1989, the great grand final is out now via Hardy Grant Books and we've been speaking with former breakfaster Tony Wilson. Thanks so much for coming in, man. Thanks. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.